the upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. And welcome to JJ, the JJ Dillon podcast. I am your co-host, JP John Paz. And with me, as always, is the star of the show, two-time Hall of Famer, the leader of the Four Horsemen, the second greatest manager of all time, former WWF and WCW executive, James J. Dillon. JJ, how are you doing this evening? Great, John. How are you? Doing very, very good. And again, this weekend, this past weekend, you were hanging out with Barry Windham, am I correct? You get to spend some time with Barry again? Yes, yes. And I always enjoy being around him. He's, uh, uh, God, he's really grown. I, I, when we were talking, I, you know, reminded him and the people that were there that he had his first professional match with me, that he, uh, uh, his father, Black Jack Mulligan and Dick Murdoch had bought the Amarillo Territory from the Funks. And young Barry was uh, actually hauling the ring, and knew that it was uh, you know one of his dreams to eventually put the tights on and get in the ring. But Jack, for whatever the reason, uh, did not embrace that idea. It was okay for uh, for Barry to haul the ring, but he 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 just I guess I don't know why I never did have a discussion with him because with Jack it was either easier to ask for forgiveness and it was for permission to do something but uh we just had a uh barry reminded me it was a situation we were somewhere in a, in a town and uh, a bunch of the guys uh were really really late getting there i don't know if it was weather or tra- or other and we were trying to get to get together enough matches um you know to at least start the show so i said barry you got your gear and he of course he Everybody knows that with uh, somebody that has uh, an aspiration to do it, to make sure you always have your gear with you because you never know. And this was another prime example. So get your stuff. You and I are going to go on first. And that was his uh, first match. And I, I knew the moment we locked up that he was destined to be a future star. Very, very cool. And I love that you're kind of rekindling it with him a few weeks mm-hmm. in a row. And obviously, yeah. as well, a few weeks ago. So that is very, very cool. And last week on the show, we were talking a lot about you leaving NWA and the Crockett's and WCW and all that other stuff and coming to the WWF, the world of Vince McMahon. And while you're there, you know, Barry eventually comes on board. Arn and Tully are already there. But what we kind of really talked about mostly was kind of the 
senior VP or the VP of talent relations and, and what that role entailed. And you really kind of went into it. I mean, creative, booking, producing, payroll, t- dealing with the talent itself. Mm-hmm. That role is pretty intense. And when you really think about it, you have a lot of responsibility if you're the WWF VP of talent relations. Yes, but really my whole career uh, were like little pieces of a puzzle that prepared me for that opportunity uh, that I, you know, a lot of guys get into the business and their whole hundred percent of their concentration is on their own individual character or their own individual, uh, you know, situation where they are. And uh, I started with Jim Crockett promotions as a full-time wrestler months before my 28th birthday. So I knew that my career as an in-ring performer was going to be, shortened somewhat only because of uh, the, the time of my life that I was that I was getting in so right from day one uh, it was yes I was totally committed to being the best that I could be as a individual performer but also had a total awareness of all the other guys and how I fit into the big picture um, the importance of television production and then how a TV show was put together and you know, all of that prepared me for down the line when, uh, you know, when when an opportunity came, uh, and that was what was going to give me longevity in the in the profession. Now, I think when people think of talent relations, they immediately just think of you know you're dealing with talent stuff like that. And last week you told a great story about how you're dealing with payroll and you're doing different things, and that mm-hmm. story with the Macho Man, yeah. and you know, and dealing with like the different personalities. Is that the hardest thing about being the VP of talent? It's just each guy has this each distinct different personality, and they may take something each the same thing like a different way. Yeah, that's a good point because it, it's it's really. Uh... It's one of the prerequisites of if you're going to be in that role, you you have to be prepared to to uh, be involved in some way with all these facets of the business. And it's not a lot of guys uh, can handle their own business, but being able to 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 deal with a whole talent roster where you have uh, you know people that are just starting out in their career, very ambitious. You have people that are veterans that have been around a long time and each has to be you know treated in their own way and and you got to recognize uh, how to do it and as I've said before uh, the personalities are unique that you when you're when you're dealing with talent some guys you know need a pat on the back to be motivated to be the best they can be and other guys you have to be more aggressive and and, and occasionally give them a little uh, kick in the keister so it's it's no one who they are and what you need to do to get the most out of them. When you are in that role and you're dealing with, you know, the egos and, and the different guys and stuff, does it ever like kick, like you say to Vince, like, oh man, macho man, you know, he's, you know, how do I deal with this guy? Or, or if I have to deal with a certain person, do you ever go to Vince and say, you know, how do I kind of massage this guy's ego or how do I deal with this? Or do you kind of figure that out all on your own? I, I definitely had to figure that out on my own. And if I had to go to Vince uh, with every individual and in every situation, which is would have been a continual process, then I'm sure he would have thought after a while, you know, what do I need this person for? I'm looking for somebody who mm. understands the demands of, of that position and that role and, and can go out there and, and do it. So 
uh, I was very fortunate that way. And then I could get along with, uh, with someone that was high maintenance and I could get along obviously with a, with a guy who wasn't and be able to see the importance of the role that each of those individual played. And that, that was all important too. looking at the big picture and everybody is, is important. Uh, you, you, uh, you, you can't, you may have to, you know, like I say, give somebody a pat in the back to get the most out of them, and somebody else you got a little, give them a little kick in the rear, uh, a kick in the butt, and and it's knowing the individual personality and and what it takes to motivate them, and that 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 largely comes with experience. Now, eventually, as you kind of move along in 1989, you start basically February of 89, but as you move across to the end of the year. Arn and Tully are already there, which is kind of cool. And you were saying last week, you know, you don't really need the comfort level, but it is cool, you know, that they're there and obviously very, very good friend of yours. Eventually, towards the end of 89, Tully fails a drug test and is basically gone. And Arn will soon follow and Arn heads back to WCW. But what were you, what's like kind of your thought process? What is your role or do you have to report this? Do you find out about this first? Like when Telly fails the drug test, kind of what happens? Well, they, what they it, it was random drug testing, and um, I was distanced in order to, to have for it to have credibility and validity. I was distanced from it. In other words, someone else uh, made the determination of when the random drug tests were going to be, and I didn't have advance warning. I didn't know till I got to the building. And I would always be one of the first ones there. And whoever was there, uh, a, a medical person that was going to do it. And the guys knew what, what was involved. It was, uh, you know, that they would have to, to give a, a, a specimen. And it, it had to be done um, where, you know, they would go into, a, into a, a bathroom with a guy. And the guy would stand there, not stand there in front of him, but he would stand there. To make sure that uh, um, that that it wasn't substituted from someone else, and if they didn't have advance warning, and first thing he did was put a put a thermometer in the specimen to record the temperature, so that would tell them that if it was something that was uh, uh, taken immediately, or rather than having someone have it uh, uh, a specimen in their pocket where they could switch it, these these were just the little things that you had to do to protect the credibility. What were your thoughts when he failed the test? Shocked, pissed, like any sort of reaction emotionally about it? Dad, just disappointed. Disappointed for him as much as anything, and and for for the business because it was because of the credibility. It was one of those things that, that you couldn't say. Well, you know, he's my friend. I'm going to try to figure a way to you know sweep this under the under the carpet and and give him a free pass. And the minute that you approach something that or a situation like that with that frame of mind, the credibility of the, of the program is gone. And, and everybody talks to everybody. They would, they would know that, uh, well, don't worry about it. Uh, you know, you're not, you're not, if, and the, and the thought was too, that, well, I'm too high up the, 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 the pecking order to, to get busted. They're going to try to figure a way to, to, uh, to, to get around this. And, um, that was one thing that I will, uh, that I would say there was, uh, there were no, 
there were no passes. It didn't matter who you were. That if you if you uh, if you got tested and got flagged, everybody suffered the same consequences. And obviously, it affected the business uh, more for somebody that was uh, higher up the the pecking order. Was Vince like furious about it? Was it something that he reacts to, or is it just purely business? You fail a test, you're going to be fired. Well, he. You know, he wasn't happy about it when it happened because, you know, he when he brings somebody in and and this is this is true. The thing that Vince had was he controlled the television and controlled the exposure. So what he was giving a, a, a potential talent coming in was an opportunity to appear on television. And that is something. And then a lot of guys didn't really understand how important that was that here, here, here's a, a television with an audience and you're now being giving, being given an opportunity to be showcased on it. And don't ever take that for granted because not everybody's going to get that opportunity. It is crazy because at this point, Survivor Series Showdown, he's wrestling Ultimate Warrior in a pretty high profile match. And then, <laughs> Obviously, he never makes it to Survivor Series, and he's replaced with Bobby Heenan on the team. And, and you know, and eventually Orin is still there and, and would soon there leave to WCW. But it is just kind of crazy that, wow, just just like that, all of a sudden, boom, he's gone. Was there ever anything said between you and Tully at this point as he's making his exit? No, not really, because he, he understood that it wasn't personal, that – it was that was the way that it had to be that if 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 the first time that you even considered uh well this guy's too important he's in the middle of a key program it's going to affect our our business it could affect our houses so we're going to find a way to ignore this and and if you did that um your your credibility of your whole program was shot and and so then how do you how do you, the next time there's a failed test, how do you um, uh, go by the, the, the letter of the law with that individual knowing that there's a guy in that same room that was in that circum- same circumstances that was let pass? You just can't allow that to happen. You, you either have, a, you either have a, 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 a drug program that you totally adhere to it properly or you don't. There's no halfway. Now, Arn would eventually leave as well and head back, like I said, to WCW. And then Flair ends up coming in in 91, kind of around maybe basically year and a half, two years later, Flair ends up kind of coming in WWF. Was there ever any talks between Vince, maybe you or, or Flair at this point and bringing him in in 89? Not that I remember, but I do remember the thing with, with Arn. I think Arn was supposed. To, I think Arn and Tully were supposed to come in as a team, and then I think it was Tully that failed a drug test, and they had, they were already leaving coming in, so it immediately affected Arn financially because you couldn't bring them in as a tag team since one was was uh, had not had not passed the test and 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 they couldn't perform as a team. So sometimes it involves more than just the individual who is, uh, uh, you know, not passed the test if he has a tag partner and you got plans for the two of them and then the one has a problem uh, 
with a failed drug test. Yeah, a lot of people realize, like, oh, you know, it stinks for yeah. Tully. Well, it stinks for Arn, too. I mean, it's just as bad for Arn because, you know, he, he is brought in as a tag team. They're the brain busters. Yep. They're doing things as a team. They're with Heenan. And then when Tully fails, it looks bad on him, too, because then they don't have anything for him. Yeah, and it's like you don't have – you. You, you, if you're bringing them in and going to showcase them as a team and then something like that happens, um, even if you try your best to do right by, by the one guy that's just a victim of the situation, um, you know, maybe it never turns out the way it would have been if the failed drug test had ever happened and you brought him in as a team and gave him the push that uh, had been designed originally. So eventually they're leaving. Flair comes in was it a surprise to you at all that flair would be in the wbf considering you know he was the face of the other brand he's kind of literally is the world champion with the big gold belt showing up in wbf um <laughs> when you've been around the business as long as i have even back back to that point nothing really surprises me to be honest with you as crazy as that sounds it's just the nature of the business uh, you can't really fully take anything for granted and, and you can't really be shocked or surprised at anything that happens. Do you think that using the big old belt and having him be the champion on TV and saying that he's a real world champion, do you think that's the right way to go? Were you kind of for it against it or didn't have any thought on the matter? Ah, <sighs> well, you know, he, he was certainly was championship uh, you know, had a pedigree for that. And so, uh, cha- championship belt it was like, I go back to championship belts were were something that some guys needed to get to that level. It's like, well, if you, like I, somebody would finally ask the question, they say, well, how come Andre the giant was never a world champion or never had the big belt? Well, it's because he's Andre the giant. He doesn't need it. He is going to be a drawing power just because not everybody walks around that's, uh, you know, seven foot tall or whatever it is. Uh, Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that somebody like Flair would not be a success, but sometimes that is the, uh, uh, you know, he he lived the gimmick. He, you know, back when he first started in the Carolinas, he, uh, he, he bought a limo and hired somebody to dress up and to show for him around. And he did it because he had a vision of what he wanted to be and made a financial investment of buying a car and paying a driver for a while until he got established. And a lot of guys don't ever think of their career that way that maybe involves an initial uh, investment to get to where you think you want to be. I'm even thinking about it from kind of a different angle as far as it's not very old school it's almost kind of wishy-washy that he is the champion of the other promotion and he's actually has that belt on your tv program is that kind of like a taboo is that something that's like a man like somebody is old school even like yourself like man that's kind of uh it's like a wishy-washy kind of thing yeah it, it's I remember there was a situation too where Medusa had a belt, changed companies, yep. and then took the belt and dropped it in a trash can. And eh, uh, I think that if a promoter gives you a belt, 
he's showing confidence in you and giving you a, a tool to help you be the best that you can be. And it's something wrong with you then turning around and taking that belt that he gave you in good faith to give you a tool to, to maximize your impact and then have you take it and use that against him. Uh, nothing surprises me in the, in the wrestling business, but from an, from a person uh, inside, um, I would never want to do that. The, the understanding was if, if you make me a champion uh, and if I plan to leave, I'm going to give you advance notice and figure out a way to drop the belt. I'm, I'm never going to leave with it. Though that that has happened. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Medusa, yeah. you're right. She was the WWF Women's Champion. She goes on WWE Nitro, yep. throws in the trash. So, yep, that is definitely true. And as far as bringing in Flyer and bringing in guys, you're the VP of Talent Relations. Are you the one that is actually bringing them in, working them on the contract, and, you know, like, okay, Flyer's a free agent, we're taking him here. Is that something that you're working on, or is there somebody else that's bringing the guys in? Somebody else is bringing them. I, don't, I never was involved in going out and uh, recruiting talent or cherry-picking talent from somewhere else and having come in. come in. I mean, you... You could do it in a kind of a, uh, a left-handed way. It was like, I remember when I, and a lot of it had to do with the circumstances, but in the case of me with, uh, with Charlotte, um, the promotion grow, grew so big that, that the, the family organization that was Jim Crocker Promotions didn't have the infrastructure to handle a company that just, just grew hugely almost instantly and so it made sense for them to 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 sell which you know they sold to turner and because turner had the resources they had uh the connections to for global television for 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 a lot of things but um and maybe i was old school in that sense that that i always did well there was treated well and i would not have been comfortable uh not doing right when it came time to move on that's me personally and and not everybody in the business felt that way but that's certainly how how i felt so who is the actual one that's kind of assigned to bringing in the talent is it vince himself is it pat patterson Uh, would it be like a jerry briscoe at this point i mean who is actually bringing in talent well vince has the final say certainly briscoe had a um a role. Pat Patterson definitely had a role. Terry Garvin, to a degree, had the role. And actually, in Charlotte, um, because of Terry's friendship with Pat, Terry left to go up there where he was going to run towns and and was going to give him some, uh, uh, you know, some some job security. And when Terry went up there, uh, I I would have conversation with him. And th- this was at a time when. Crockett was having it. You could tell when there, when there's a problem, even if you don't know the details. I remember, like you would get your, you would we would get paid weekly, and there would be a breakdown for each of the towns and uh, an amount. Uh, it wouldn't be like a salary; it would be amount allocated to to each of the towns. If the town was better, you expected a better payday. Uh, if it was le- a smaller town, it would be less. And if it was a disaster of a town, you still expected a, a minimum compensation. 
Um, and and that's how the the business was structured, and that's how talent were accustomed to to being compensated. Uh, I'm sure there was a chance to make sure that certain people reached a certain level, whether it was a bonus in the check or something to bring them up to a level. If the towns didn't all all do that well, but that that's how the business was structured. There there weren't weren't true salaries, except at a certain level you expected. The, that you were going to make it within a certain range on a, on every given week. Now, as far as the WBF at this point, obviously you got Vance. We talked about Pat and Jerry and Terry Garvin. What is Shane McMahon's role at this point? He's, he's relatively young, but kind of not that young. I'm sure he's, I'm, I'm going to say maybe since early 20s at this point. I'm not even sure yeah. exactly. Yeah, probably early 20s would make sense. So what is his role at this point? Uh, he wasn't involved, as, as as I remember, and I and I can understand this, that I think Shane. It would have been an, an impossible role for anyone, especially a, a a son, to really grow under Vince's shadow because Vince was such a high-profile figure that that when you think about it. I mean, how how could somebody like Shane become successful without people maybe resenting and say, well, he doesn't he doesn't deserve to be there. He hasn't earned it. He's only getting it because he was uh, was, you know, Vince's son. But that's the reason I think that he went to China to China, make his own mark apart from his father. And I and I respected Shane for that. He wanted to, he wanted to accomplish something on his own. You think at all in WWF that he was kind of being groomed because you know you always saw him kind of being a referee on TV or you know, maybe being uh, somewhat of not an agent per se but somebody that working here behind the scenes. You hear that he's doing camera, here's doing this and that. Like, was he being groomed at all? Like as far as okay, we're going to let him do every aspect of the business and hopefully eventually he'll catch up and, and he'll learn so much and he'll be you know, one of the guys. I think that's a very smart approach uh, and made sense because to immediately go at the highest level and be working with people, all of whom came up through the ranks and paid their dues would sometimes, especially if he's a younger guy and dealing with, you know, guys that are years older that have been in the business that have reached the, uh, the higher levels uh, would have been really tough and doing it this way. Uh, he had been hands on every aspect of the business. And I, the other good part of that too, is that it also gave him a better understanding of what was involved with every aspect. So if you're dealing with the people that, that do your television, that work camera and so forth, whatever their problems may be, they can come to you and discuss it with you and you can understand what they're doing and, and relate to it because you had done it yourself. Did you have any, any sort of relationship with him at all? With Shane? Yeah. Uh, not really. Um, I mean, I was there quite a while bef before he came back and never really, I don't think I was ever there for any time. I don't even think I was there for a time when he came back and and had a, a a top management role. Now, as 
far as the time period around 1990 in the WWF, this is obviously obviously before Flair comes in. And, we, you know, last week we talked a little bit about Macho Man and the payroll issues. And we talked a little bit about Andre, maybe having a little bit of resentment or maybe not trusting you because you were from the South. And we were talking a little bit about how Hulk Hogan kind of would just deal directly with Vince. But a guy that we didn't talk about who was a big star of this era is the Ultimate Warrior. And eventually... Mm-hmm. WrestleMania six in 1990, he becomes world champion. What was kind of your dealings with him? Because he is such a unique guy. And I feel like if your <laughs> yeah. talent relations and you know, you're dealing with the ultimate warrior, something tells me he's going to be a little bit different to deal with than some of the other guys. I think it would, to say that he was high strung would, would be an understatement, <laughs> but he, but he also was, uh, he was a, a very unique talent that if you could, if somebody had the the idea of saying, well, I'm going to create this, this guy who's got an athletic body, not really a great mechanical wrestler, but he's got the body and we're going to put, you know, armbands with, with stringers down his biceps and have him run to the ring like a wild man. It, it's a, it's, he has to create that himself. And then you watch it and you watch the response to the people and it was obvious that, that and, and we've, we've talked about this at various times over the, over the weeks, uh, the it factor. And if you ask me again, how do you define the it factor? Well, I can't define it. I, I, I've struggled over years to try and write down what the it factor is. The only thing I can tell you is a talent either has it or they don't. And it's something that you... Uh, that you can't teach somebody or, or, or pass on to somebody. They either have it or they don't. What were your thoughts on where you thought he definitely had it? Um, he had, there was something, yes, he had it. There was something that the fans gravitated to him because he was, he was not a polished performer. He was somebody that would go out there and couldn't give you long matches because he was so high energy. I mean, his music would hit and he would bust through that curtain and he would run to the ring with the streamers, you know, and then he would get in the ring and he would bounce from rope to rope to rope and then he'd go to a rope and he would shake it like a wild man. I mean, he, he just he had his own thing that made him different than, than everybody else and his matches didn't go real long, but he, he, he electrified the audience. And that's really what you can't ignore you say and he's got it the people are the judge and jury they're responding to it okay how do we make how do we get the, the most out of this and that's the challenge of uh of uh of being creative and being on in charge of uh of talent management what did you think about promos um he 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 would do promos and for me i was always a storyteller so there was a story that i told with every promo i would listen to him promo and when he was done if you asked me what he had just said i could tell you i don't know (laughs) but but (laughs) we laugh about it but he just electrified and mesmerized people and just was this unique character 
and he he couldn't be a traditional wrestler in that that his interviews were important into talking people into the seats. You just you had to do get there other ways by uh, you know creating a, an issue between him and somebody else. But but that's what made him unique, and maybe that's what the people saw in him and why they were so supportive of him because he was different. He was so charismatic. He definitely was very charismatic. Over. That's oh. the word that I forgot. Yes, that's yeah. the word that I that really best describes him. He was charismatic. What did you think about him behind the scenes? Was he as crazy behind the scenes as he was in front of the camera? Um, I would call him unorthodox. You know, he was different, but I always got along with him. Uh, I got because I, I think that's why I had uh, longevity in the business and success in the business because I had been a talent myself, so I understood. Um, virtually everything that a talent, regardless of, of their style or what they were about, because I had been a talent. So I could really relate to almost any, any situation. And you, you, there was no standard that, well, this is how I deal with talent and that they, they have to conform to, to my guidelines to be successful. You got to be the other way. You got to have certain things that, that you have to be supportive of because of your role for that promotion to, so that the thing doesn't blow up and go crazy. But you have to understand that you're in a unique business with a bunch of uh, sometimes crazy individuals and it's up to you to somehow manage to keep all of that in order and get the most out of everybody so that we all benefit from it. Have you ever worked with a guy like him? Like you said, you know, he's unorthodox, he's different. Was there anybody kind of comparable to him or was he definitely unique unto himself? Oh, I think he was unique unto himself. I can't remember anybody that was, which I, again, I think had a lot to do with why he was so successful because he was so different. I think smart move at that point, taking the belt off Hogan, him going over on Hogan at WrestleMania six. Do you think that was the right decision? Uh, well, that's hard to answer. You know, it, it, I'm I, I'm a firm believer in not playing hot potato with the belt, going from guy to guy to guy. Uh, I remember when I first started f- uh, full time in the business. Um, trying to think of who was I don't know if it, like Luthez had held the title for 25 years off and on, and then uh, uh, the title changed hands and it, and it stayed. And I forget even who it was, but he remained champion for like you know, four years, which, uh, you know, you would think, well, if the fans come to the arena, you build up a match that, that you plant the seed that, that, that a challenger is going to defeat, uh, a champion in your town and you need to buy a ticket and be there to watch it happen. And then when a guy becomes champion and, and stays champion for like four years, uh, you got to keep telling that story and keep making the fans believe. Well, this is the this is you, this is finally the guy, and this this is this is this could this could be it. You better be there and buy a ticket and see it. And that was the challenge of uh, of keeping business going. And as long as they had good matches and you had logical uh, finishes and entertained the people, you can you can. 
keep following that formula almost indefinitely. The thing with Warrior is you always hear stories about him being difficult. And was he difficult at all? Because I know, obviously, um, at SummerSlam 91, there was a bit of an issue. And Vince even says, uh, you know, he couldn't have waited to, to fire him as soon as he walked backstage. And he wanted more money going out. And then all yep. of a sudden, yeah. Vince agreed. And then, so what was the whole situation yeah. there? Was that a difficult well, situation? That, it was difficult in the sense that it was not a very professional move or a very smart move on the part of a warrior. You don't take Vince and hold him up for money on any one given night. Because if you think about it, the first time that Vince said, okay, and adheres to the demand and lets it go, what that scenario is going to happen again and again and again. And mm -hmm. then if you don't draw the line the first time, uh, it's going to kill your business. And so uh, it didn't, doesn't matter about who the talent is or how important they are or how hot they are at the time. But if they hold you up that night, you don't have any choice. They're, they're there. They're in the arena. All those people are sitting out there. The house is what the house is. And if you allow that person to hold you up and get away with it, uh, then he controls your business. You don't, you don't control it. And you, you, can't, you can't survive and let that happen. Were you shocked that night when he did that? Because, you know, you hear it behind the scenes, like, guys, hold on, Vince, before he goes out to the ring, he's part of a main event, match made in heaven, the match made in hell. He's going to team with Hogan that night, Sid's the referee. You got Adnan Slaughter and the Iron Sheik, a.k.a. Mustafa, on the other side. I mean, he's a big role and a big part of the main event of the night. You shocked that he would pull that? Surprised that he did not have enough experience to see the big picture. And if he, if he had, he would have understood that he was basically uh, cutting his own throat. You hold him up that night. Yep. What's Vince going to say? No. And you don't go out there. You got the house in there. You got to go out there and get through that night. But then you, you, uh, you then cut the tie at that point. And no matter how much you got invested in them or how over they are, the minute that you let them dictate to you and you let them get away with it and there's 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 no price to pay for it, you might as well kiss your business goodbye. And most guys know that. They can say, okay, if I'm going to hold the guy up tonight and I'm, I'm going to get probably a lot more money than I would have otherwise. But most guys think, well, what about next week and the week after and the week after? And don't realize that, okay, hey, oh, wow, you know. I, I, I got three times what I could have because I held Vince up. And don't think about this guy's been in the promotion. He's the third generation, and he's still in business because he didn't allow this situation to happen and, and to get by with it. But a lot of guys just don't. <laughs> I don't want to go and say they're not smart, but I guess they're not smart when they do something like that. Yeah, they, got, they, they did something that night, but at what cost? Because it probably cost them a lot more where they would have been better off in their position if they'd uh, uh, kind of adhered to norms like they should have been. What was it like backstage when the match is over and he comes back through and Vince fires and what is like pandemonium? Was it just, you know, Vince was pissed off and that was the end of it? Like what happened backstage that night? I think he was shocked. And then it's okay. Um, 
nothing nothing in the wrestling business shocked me and if that happened i knew that vince had no choice had to do what he had to do then it was immediately okay we got to think about tomorrow and the day after or next week and try to figure out the best way to regroup and uh you know keep business going yeah, he means him and Hogan at this point were the, the kind of the two babyface stars. And eventually, you know, obviously the, the things change and war ends up going back at WrestleMania 8. And, you know, which is a few months later, and Vince, I guess, forgives him and whatever. Is that one of those things where anything is forgivable in the wrestling business? Warrior can come back even after he pulled that shenanigans. Vince will still bring him back as long as you're a good business. It's okay, and eventually things will work themselves out. Well, I, I, the first, the fact that Vince cut ties that night. Here's a guy that made a demand and held him up for money before he went out there, and then was finished as of that night. So he goes home, and and it's like, okay, I'm looking on this given night, what more I got than I would have otherwise but I lost everything going forward. So was it such a smart move? And you got to let guys go through that and experience it. And then maybe five years goes by and he comes back and the guy comes back with his tail between his legs. And it's like, I learned my lesson. I realized that, uh, it was more than just, uh, holding you up for what compensation I got for that night. And what did I forfeit as a result of t- making that decision that day? And it was very stupid of me to do that. And most guys then figure it out. And it's only you know, basically six months or so later, Vince ends up bringing back Warrior for WrestleMania 8. And it's just kind of surprising just that return because you, you didn't see it coming. Kind of a weird placement. Vince, uh, excuse me, Hulk and Sid in the main event that night. Papa Shango comes out. They're double teaming Hulk after the DQ. And then Warrior makes a surprise appearance. Huge pop, of course. That long entrance way that he ran down. He was probably exhausted by the time he got in the ring. <laughs> yeah. It definitely looked like it. Was that just kind of like one of those things like, okay, Warrior's good business. We need him back. And obviously Hulk is on his way out as he's trying to go a little bit into Hollywood. He's going to be doing some movies and he's going to step away for a bit. Is that one of those things where Vince is like, okay, I'll forgive you. You're good business. We need you back and you're going to be one of the top baby faces. Um, the business is full of uh, stories about where guys got second chances. And if he was any kind of a smart businessman, he would understood that what he did that night, uh, he paid a price for because the the umbilical cord was was cut that night and all that he could have made going for. Now's a guy, here's a guy who's not booked as of that next day. And yeah, mm-hmm. okay, he has a name for himself or whatever. And he, you know, a guy like that is a, a talent that is always going to, uh, um, you know, if, uh, find a place to go because there's always a territory that's down that that is looking for a, something like that. But um, most guys figure it out that to do that, especially to somebody like Vince McMahon, it just isn't a good business decision. As far as WrestleMania eight. You had a big role in that creatively. Was that kind of one of your 
you know, basically one of the things where you get more responsibility for that show was WrestleMania eight. That was one Indiana- of those shows where you had more responsibility. That yep. was in Indiana- oh, Yeah. What happened there was, uh, Terry Garvin and the ring crew reported to Pat Patterson. And there was an incident that uh, hit the papers in New York. And it was a big scandal that involved Terry. And Vince had no choice other than he had to have, uh, he had to have Pat fire Terry Garvin. And then Vince had to somehow show that Pat was ultimately responsible because he let it happen and, and that that uh, uh, that what's his name reported to Pat. So that's why Pat was he was suspended. And during that period of time, Pat did not come around. I don't know if what kind of communication it was between Pat and Vince. I would not have been surprised if Vince continued to. Uh, um, it, it didn't have a contract, but I would not have been surprised if Pat didn't receive some compensation with Vince through that period of time. And it was like a six-month period, period where, and Indianapolis was the next big pay-per-view, and where Pat and I had would do it uh, together. It was like, okay, this is all your baby. You figure it out, book the card, and you're going to have to run everything. And which I fortunately was able to do, and it did it did very well. But I also realized that how important Pat was. That Pat to me was uh, the the smartest guy that I ever worked around in the business in terms of because he'd been a main eventer as a talent a huge run with him and Stevens in San Francisco and then again up in Minneapolis for Vern. And he just, he was great with all of the talent. And I saw firsthand, like every time they had a major event, like, like uh, uh, WrestleMania, nothing was left to chance. The two people would do a build up to, uh, to WrestleMania and Pat would basically, they would find a location somewhere where there's a ring set up where there was no audience or nobody that would, would see him. And he would take the two guys and have them work out in the ring together, have a mini match in front of Pat that would give them a comfort level with the, with each other. And then the last thing was, I think they would actually have a, a an unadvertised dark match in a town in front of a live audience uh, in a very small town, just, just to give them a comfort level of doing whatever they were doing in front of the people. And it was uh, a very smart way to run your business rather than having something as big as WrestleMania to have two guys that were, were, were uh, veteran performers, but take it that extra step by having them uh, actually in the ring together in front of a live audience somewhere else where nobody really knew that, that they had faced each other before and they thought that, that that encounter at WrestleMania was the first time they were ever going to see each other. But the end result was you had one hell of a match. Now, as far as that controversy with Terry Garvin and the ring crew and uh, basically a horrible sex scandal that hit the WWF at that point, were 
you're shocked, but I know you mentioned a few times, you know, nothing really surprised you. Shocked? Yeah. Is that one of those things? It's kind of one of those things that shocks us. Man, that's not something I thought of with you know Terry Garvin. Um, Terry was a friend, had been a friend for a long time, and in this business, there are all kinds of people. You know, they're gays, they're straights, they're you know, I, I mean, like I say, nothing, nothing surprised me, and I and I look at someone who what they contribute to the success of the promotion and Terry there was nobody better than getting towns and going out and having and knowing how to promote them and have the towns be successful Terry Garvin was in my opinion the best guy that I ever worked with for for doing that and um he was close with Pat and it just was one of those really really sad things and and what was bad was was because uh, it involved uh, underage guys that mm-hmm. were handling the ring crew, and it hit the papers in New York. And you you couldn't you had to you you, you couldn't ignore it or sweep it under because the, the the especially the guy in New York that really hated Vince would have would have made you suffer terribly if if you didn't uh, uh, if, if you didn't do something about it. And it was it was. Sad. It was unfortunate, but it is just when you think about it, like shocking, disgusting, crazy, and yeah. and not good. Was Pat ever kind of not that he's guilty of it or anything, but was he ever like thought of as far as like everybody backstage? Was he kind of thought of poorly at this point, or was you know eventually when he comes back, he's forgiven completely? Yeah. Well, Pat was very, very highly respected in the business. First, because he could set up matches for WrestleMania or anywhere, and two guys would not ever second guess whatever Pat's input or critiquing or, or uh, uh, you know, creative input. Uh, because Pat had been there and and had such an incredible record on top for a long time in San Francisco. And then it wasn't be like, Oh, it's just that one territory where he excelled. No, he went to Minneapolis and same thing happened. So whatever Pat said, and, and like he would always, uh, main events for WrestleMania basically be in charge of taking the two guys and then getting together, having worked out privately and critique the match. So that when it happened, uh, at the actual live event, uh, it was never a disappointment because Pat was hands-on with everything, and he just—he was—he was—he really was a, as a good an in-ring performer as I ever saw. Period. Did you ever have a conversation with him about this whole scandal and this whole controversy after it happened? Uh, no. It's like, what would there have been to discuss? And, and I mean, I already knew everything that was going on and what was I going to say to Pat? You know, why did, why, you know, how, why did you let this happen? I and mean, there was nothing, there was nothing to, to, dis, to discuss. It just was a sad situation. And when he had to let Pat had to let Terry go. And because Terry had reported to Pat, Vince had to suspend Pat. And like I said, to this day, it would not surprise me if he continued to get a paycheck for those six months. I don't know. It would never ask. None of my business. And I remember um, all of a sudden, 
you know, and starting with that Indianapolis pay-per-view, it was instead of Pat Mai with, with Vince, it was myself and Vince, which was okay, which was good that that business didn't suffer because of that, which um, probably increased my st- stock value in, in that without Pat there, business didn't go uh, in the tubes and that I was able to work with Vince and really keep up the momentum and do well. And I remember six months went by and we used to be in the office during the week um, taking care of all because Vince was hands-on with every aspect of the business. Uh, posters for shows and things, he, he had to give his blessing to, to to the artwork and everything. He, he was hands-on with everything. And I remember still that six-month period of time uh, still going out to the house with just Vince and I now uh, doing all of the booking and, and matchmaking for TV and and was out there one Sunday and we used to work in the summertime out on, he had a veranda that was, uh, with, was covered over right next to the pool and he had a whole bank of phones out there and we're out there one day and we're sitting there and Vince looks at me and he says, uh, he says, I have a surprise for you. Oh, really? He said, yeah. He said, turn around. And as I turned around to look at the back, at the back of the house, here around the corner comes Pat Patterson. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I just smiled. And I was really happy to see him. I, re- I like Pat as a person. Had tremendous respect for his ability as an in-ring talent, but for what he did with matchmaking and, and all aspects of the business. And, and the guys all, all related to him because if he was going to set up a match and, and uh, gave a constructive criticism, nobody ever questioned his validity in making that because Pat had, had performed at the highest level for a sustained period of time and in more than just one place. So Pat could speak from having done not not always, uh, you know, a lot of guys could be good talking in theory and be good at it. But Pat had that added uh, dimension of having been successful himself. So when he said something or, or laid something out, um, it, he had that added credibility. Then and before he returns, WrestleMania 8, that it wasn't Hogan versus Flair. The two biggest stars of that era were in wrestling. And you always hear stories like, oh, well, they tried it in, in 91 and the house shows didn't draw well and MSG didn't draw as well as they thought and this or that. What was the reason for the change? Because it seemed like Hogan and Flair were on a collision course and then you change it and it becomes Flair versus Savage and Hogan versus Sid. Yeah, well, I, the thing with, with Flair, there was such a high expectation uh, of, of what was going to happen when the two of them finally met. And that's part of the, the, the great mystique of the wrestling business that in theory, something looks to be a grand slam home run. And when it, when it's out there and happening, it doesn't, it, it doesn't give you the results that you anticipated. And you can't explain why. I to this day, I can't explain why. Um, and you then have to recognize that and make adjustments because you can't you can't you can't take the attitude that the, the audience is the, the judge and jury. 
if something goes out there and you start with this great anticipation that it's that it's going to be so huge and there's something missing and it doesn't get the box office result that you expect and it's not just one town it's more than that it's a bigger thing and try to figure out why if we all knew that and 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 had the magic formula I'd be sitting in uh, maybe Vince's house now, one <laughs> just like it <laughs> up the street. But that's the thing with the, the uh, you know about the business. You, it's the, the you you can anticipate what the fans are going to think or do or react, but there's no guarantee. And there's times when you get out there and you're you're anticipating the response to the crowd and you expect them to blow the roof off the building and it's half two-thirds of, of the reaction that you thought it was going to be. And there are also times where you put something together, I, I, would, I would say, like to basically in between something that you think is a big program, well, I'll put these two together temporary just to keep everybody everybody good without any thought that it's that it's going to be huge box office. And they get out there and it is huge box office. And it's like, I don't understand this. <laughs> and and when you think that you got the business figured out, it is time to hang it up and quit because you'll never figure it out. The people, again, are the ultimate judge and jury. And you don't know till you put it out there and, and let the jury speak. And I think that's kind of the, the perfect kind of ending point, the stopping point, because... I mean, literally, we could do a whole episode on WrestleMania 8 and we can kind of, you know, dissect the card and even go into further into the, you know, supposed to be Hogan, Flair, and then the change to Hogan, Sid, and then, and obviously, Macho Man and Flair having their epic feud, and even Bret Hart and Piper having an awesome match, and that Blade yeah. job controversy, and, and, you know, all that kind of stuff, but I think this is, like, the perfect stopping point, because I think that and some other controversies around that era could be whole separate Episodes by themselves, uh, for sure. John, now, I think, you, you're, you I think you're absolutely right. I think <laughs> you're absolutely right. And as far as you, what do you got coming up as far as some personal appearances? I know you got a lot of them coming up towards the end of the year here. Yeah, I got to find my date book. It's terrible. If I don't have it written down, I hold on a minute. Bear with me. JJ's keeping himself so busy these days, which is great because you got to have one of the all time greatest managers the leader of the four horsemen out there meet and greeting the fans and doing all these kind of different things and, and really, really getting out there, meeting the people and, and still be, you still being, I can't find you still being as popular as you were, you know what I mean? All these years later. Still, yeah. You know, these sometimes still I still want to see you. I pinch myself that, you know, I, I go out and, and appear at a show and, and it does extremely well. And, uh, you know, the fans come by and are very, very, very gracious and very kind. And, and, uh, but I never let it go to my head. Never. I tried to always keep both feet on the ground and knowing that, uh, that, that the fans and it, it's like, I, and that's one thing I'll say about flair. And I, and I, uh, ascribe to the same thing. The Flair as a champion would go out 
in front of a, a building with 20,000 people and go out there and give you a 50-minute match that uh, would just tear the roof down. And then you would every and it didn't happen very often, but to, because you you know you would have to fill the fill the calendars so the especially the underneath guys so that they you know they had a payday every night that collectively you know that made their week so you know guys sometimes would have to go to towns that just didn't have a huge population or the tv was at a weird time and you go to a town like that and instead of uh, a twenty-five thousand dollar house you got a five thousand dollar house and some guys would say okay well I'm just going to go through the motions. I'm I'm not going to take a chance on getting hurt or whatever, and that's the reason that Flair is, uh, goes down as one of the great champions, if not the greatest champion of all time, because he would go out there and give you the same effort for those 500 people that were there than he did the night before in another arena where there were 5,000 people, and it was just professional pride that he didn't believe in short shortcuts. And night after night to do that takes a toll on your body, but that's how that's how Ric Flair operated, and that's why he is one of the greatest, if not the greatest, champions of all time, because that was his work ethic. Absolutely. Well said. And as far as personal appearance, I do know on November 23rd, you will be in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania at the old ECW Arena. Yes. I, I, know, I know that for sure. That's one booking yeah. i definitely know for sure charlie charlie armstrong hartman has me there and he's been booking me uh uh around different places but philly's a big one coming up and and you know i live in delaware not not far from philly and um so i'm excited to go to philly because i it'll i, I know it's going to do well and, of course, check out the uh, J.J. Dillon store on Pro Wrestling Tees. Yes, ProWrestlingTees.com slash J.J. Dillon. Get yourself a J.J. shirt. Check us out on Patreon. A new Patreon page has been set up for a J.J. where you can become a patron and support the show. Please check out TMPTEmpire.com. On there, you'll see a link to the J.J. podcast. And on there a link to the JJ website, jjdillon.com, where I highly encourage you to buy JJ's book, Wrestlers Are Like Seagulls, from McMahon to McMahon. And, of course, please continue to email us at jjdillonpodcast at gmail.com. That is jjdillonpodcast at gmail.com. And in the upcoming weeks, we will have a AJJ episode, which is Ask JJ Anything. Got a couple really good questions in so far. Actually, a bunch. Got to kind of sift through and find the, the really good ones. But that will definitely be a future episode where we'll do an Ask JJ Anything. That is for sure. So please continue on sending us questions. Even do it via Twitter, at Two-Man Power Trip, hashtag AJJA. So that's pretty much all the plugs, JJ. You got yeah. a lot going on, a lot yeah. to kind of uh, divulge. But kind of looking forward to doing a Q&A uh, in a few weeks with you. Yes, and John, you know that uh, that that I, I don't do the show f- for anything other than the fans, and it's like everything that I have in the way of material things and and whatever accolades in terms of Hall of Fame uh, uh, rings and 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 plaques, uh, it's only because uh, of the fans. That I always was never the biggest or the best, but nobody worked harder than I did or loved the business more than I did. And I think the fans 
can sense that when you have when you're not when it's not a job, it's it's a passion, and that's why Flair has been such a great champion. And I like to to. It's not that I that I took a page from Flair, but I subscribe to that that same idea. Every night I work, I go out there, and I don't believe in taking shortcuts. And I know that those people work hard for their for their money, and they have a choice. They can spend it and go to a movie, or they can come to a wrestling event. And they work hard for their money, and if they come to see me, I want to give them my best effort every night. And I, and I like to think that maybe that's why I've had some longevity in the profession. So I encourage you to please send in your emails. Uh, if there's something that we talked about that you you didn't find interesting and, and we lost your interest, tell us that. And if there's something that you would like us to talk about, tell us that too. And we, we appreciate the direction because this show is – is not for us. It's for you, the fans, and and so we want to give you uh, uh, subjects and and content that uh, you're going to find interesting, so that you'll continue to support us. Well said, JJ. And of course, every week on Saturday at six oh five, a very very familiar time to you, and hopefully all the old school fans out there. Every week, the episode of JJ drops. So. Please stick with us every week, 6.05 Saturday, for JJ, the JJ Dillon Podcast. Thank you, John, and we'll see you everybody next week. This podcast was a presentation of the two-man power trip of wrestling's podcast empire.